This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, if you want to head there in your Bibles. Uh, Jeremiah, flip to the middle of your Bible and start heading to the right. You'll hit Jeremiah. We're going to continue our study on refrigerated, ver- refrigerated verses, those verses that our culture has kind of corrupted into those kind of cliche platitudes. But before we get there, let me warm up your minds by asking this question. What would you say made you who you are today? What would you say made you who you are today? And to be clear, I'm not asking what made you what you are today. I'm asking what made you who you are today. Would you say it was the vacations or the job promotions that made you who you are today? Or perhaps it was when you won something or were praised for something. Is that what made you who you are today? Or was it the hard times that made you who you are today? Was it the suffering and the difficulties and the hardship that grew you and and trained you and shaped you into who you are today? The reason I ask that question is because even though it's clear, even though we know that that is true, that it is the difficulties in life that have shaped and molded us into who we are today, In those moments when we're in the midst of those difficulties, we still think something is wrong. We still think something needs to be fixed. Even though we know, looking in hindsight at those times, that that they often grow us as Christians, when we're experiencing, experiencing them, we still fight and struggle and claw to make them go away. We still view them as a cosmic mistake has taken place. And one of the passages that's often used to comfort us in those times comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. So this morning we're going to look at that time when Israel was suffering and God said that to them. Look at verse 1 of chapter Jeremiah chapter 29. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, after King David... The nation of Israel fell straight into sin and chaos, like Mayday. Out of of the 21 kings that ruled over Judah, only four of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Meaning, over 80% of the kings that ruled over Judah led God's people into idolatry and sin. Some of it being very, very 
ugly. Child sacrifice. Temple prostitute kind of stuff. So God commissioned Jeremiah to prophesy some 400 years after King David to tell the people that because of their sin, they were going to be conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. And, and what we see in verse 1 is that Jeremiah 29 picks up right after that exile had taken place, right after they had been taken to Babylon. <laughs> Jeremiah was left in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he is writing to the Judeans who have already been taken to Babylon. So what does God have to say to those people? What does God have to say to those people who had just been conquered and forcefully relocated from the promised land to Babylon? What did God think his people needed to hear when it appeared that everything had gone sideways? Well, what God thought they needed to hear is the same thing we need to hear this morning. Because even though the circumstances may be different, we still experience times of suffering and anxiety and hardship and, and pain. When things don't go how we wish they would, when things are out of our control. So it's in those moments, those moments of hardship, that we still need to be convinced and this is what I want you to hear this morning. We still need to be convinced that God knows what he's doing. That God knows what he's doing. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 again. He said, these are the words of Jeremiah to the prophets and the exiles and the priests. And Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials, of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa and the son of Shaphan and Gamaria and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, <coughs> man, king of Judah, <laughs> sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and this is what it said. Now let me try to help you understand what lies behind those simple verses, because we weren't there. But in those three simple verses that just sounds like somebody's choking on something, there's a lot, a lot of pain. Picture yourself in the city of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's time. Now recently, there seems to have been kind of an increase in the conflict between your nation and the surrounding nations. That has troubled you. But recently your king has rebelled against the dominant world power of the time being Babylon. And because he rebelled, their army has now surrounded your city in an effort to starve you out. Now fast forward 18 months. You're still in the city of Jerusalem. However, by this time, the city has completely descended into chaos. There's no food left. People have already eaten all the donkeys, all the dogs, all the rats, all the birds, everything that they can get their hands on. But it still isn't enough, and you have witnessed Horrific things in the past couple weeks. 
You have witnessed men kill each other over a scrap of leather to chew on. Say, yesterday you saw a mother kill her baby so that it wouldn't suffer. So today, because your people were too weak to fight, the Babylonian army finally broke through the walls and began to round people up. But you're not done yet, because what, what is going to happen next is, is now you are going to take about a 900-mile walk to Babylon. That's who Jeremiah is writing to. That's what he's saying in verses 1 through 3. That's, that's what has taken place when he says that, that those names have done those things. And the first thing that he wants them to know in that state is that God knows what he's doing even when things seem bleak. Even when things seem terribly bleak. In Matthew chapter 18, there's a story where Jesus called a young child to come sit on his lap while he taught the disciples that they needed to become like that child in order to get into the heaven, to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, currently, I have been blessed with three, almost four grandchildren. And besides learning how fun it is to feed them donuts before dinner and that stuff, I've also been blessed to witness something that, that helps me understand what Jesus meant. You see, like every other newly married couple, my kids and their spouses have difficulties and hardships and, and, and trials. There are disagreements and strife and, and even fights between them as they learn to live with a spouse. And if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. These are not little spats. These are, dear God, how am I going to stay married to this person kind of disagreements. They have financial difficulties where budgets are razor thin and month after month it just seems like the days outnumber the check. However, one thing that has struck me is how, for example, we're sitting at our kitchen table and one of our kids is talking about how dire things are. But my grandchild, sitting in their mother's lap, is as secure and happy as can be, playing with a little plastic solo cup. They are oblivious to what's going on around them. Because for that child, for my grandchild, the world could be coming apart in their parents' lives, but, but they wouldn't care if they had to live in a box as long as they had their mother or father with them. Because you see, circumstances for them are not dictated by where or when or how. Good or bad for them is not found in a place or in a thing. In a young child, even though things might be incredibly bleak, their security is not wrapped up in a what, but a who. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Our security is not wrapped up in a what or a where or a how, but a who. 
because our God knows what he's doing, even when things are bleak. Even when things look the grimmest, our God knows what he's doing. Think about it this way. What if you could know the next time your life will fall apart? What if you could know that? What if you could know the next time that you would wish that there was a, a complaint desk in the kingdom of heaven? What would you do? What would you do leading up to that time that you knew? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, we know what we would do is everything in our power to change it. When we were living in Texas, I had started my own company. And there were times when things weren't going very well. And there were times when I could see difficulty coming. So I would count the days and the weeks and, and I would tell Shannon, I'd say, if I don't get another client by such and such time, I'm going to have to go work somewhere else. We're going to be you know, missing meals and payments and that sort of thing. And I'm embarrassed to say that it made me so angry when my loving wife would look back at me and say, God knows what he's doing. He's going to provide for us. We'll be okay. You see, I hate to admit it, but for, for all intents and purposes, what I was saying to my wife at those times was something like, well, God doesn't realize how bad things are. I'm the one doing the math here. I know. That's what I'm saying to her. Brothers and sisters, please trust me when I tell you that God knows what he's doing even when things are bleak. However, let me ask you if you've ever experienced this. It's easy to sit in church on Sunday and say, yes, amen. God knows what he's doing. Have you, have you ever been in that place where you know in your mind what the truth is, but you don't feel it? Like you know how you should feel, but you can't make yourself feel it. Why do we feel that way? Why do we have those moments when we know what the truth is, but nothing inside us feels it? Those times like me where, where you might know God knows what he's doing, but you just don't like it. One of those moments that Paul Tripp would say, it reveals the difference between our formal theology, which is what we know, and our our functional theology, which is how we live. Look at verses 4 through 9 where Jeremiah says that God knows what he's doing even when we don't like what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. 
For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now you need a little context to understand what Jeremiah is saying here. You see those prophets and diviners that he's talking about in verse 8 that God tells them not to listen to. What you can learn later in the book of Jeremiah is that they were telling these people that this exile was only going to be a couple of years. And that God was going to fix things, restore Israel back to its former glory. But God says don't listen to them. Those are just pipe dreams. I didn't send them. Rather, if you actually look at the very beginning of verse 10, God says get comfortable because you're going to be there for a while. In fact, most of you are going to die there because you're going to be there for 70 years. Now, if, if we're talking about God knowing what he's doing, even when we don't like what he says, we got to be careful not to move past these verses too quickly without actually hearing what he's saying. Look again at verses 5 through 7 because God says a couple of things that are important for us to catch. Notice in verses 5 through 6 that God tells his people to just live their regular life. Just live your life day by day, hour by hour, do normal things, and let me worry about the future. You see, during hardship, when things get difficult, painful, anxious, we're prone to press pause on our lives. Like we'll get back to our regularly scheduled broadcast when things calm down. But God says, no, you just live your life. Just one foot in front of the other, do normal things every single day. One day at a time. In other words, oftentimes the, the paralysis, let's say, that hardship can cause in us, it exposes where our hearts are. It often exposes that we think something is off track. Look, I want to say something that's, that's very hard to hear. Because it's one of those things that is true. While at the same time, we will never be able to grab hold of it this side of heaven. And that is that fear, anxiety, pressure. Those things that we fear... In, in this life at their heart are an attack on God's sovereignty at its heart worry and fear are a distrust a denial of God's sovereignty in other words oftentimes that paralysis that, that anxiety and fear can cause in us during hard times it exposes that we don't think God is in control. Because you see, when we react like that, what we're subtly saying is that God didn't know we would be in this position. Like he has a plan for my life. He's given me commands and instructions, but those plans are going to be on pause until he resolves this hardship that he didn't expect to disrupt what he's asked me to do. So I'll wait until things are good, until things are more comfortable, until things are the way I think they should be, and then I'll live the life that he's called me to live. 
Brothers and sisters, not only is God aware of every single situation in your life, but he has ordained them all. Your God knows what he's doing, even when we don't like what he says. But here's the kicker. Look at verse 7. Not only does God tell them to live their lives and, and leave the timing up to him, but he says, oh yeah, and while you're there, however long I determine that to be, bless the people who are making things painful for you. That's a tough one, friends. Not only does God call us to just live our regular lives when, when those things happen, but he he, he says, I actually want you to bless anyone involved in making your life difficult. Think about what that means when your spouse is making your life miserable. Think about what that means when your kids or a friend or a co-worker is the one who is causing your heartache or suffering. Brothers and sisters, God knows what he's doing even when we don't like what he says. Recently, I, I heard... John Piper tell a story about a letter that he had received from a man uh, who, who wrote about the disappointment he felt being stuck in the boring, dead-end job where he had hours on end with nothing to do. He described how he felt so useless and ineffective, which, um, ladies, that's a horrible thing for a man to experience. However, this man went on to write how God revealed to him that there could be another reason that he had that job. And by the time this man wrote this letter to Piper, he said that he had memorized 15 books of the New Testament in his downtime at work. You see, this man had figured something out. He had figured out that our God does things on purpose. He had figured out that our God allows things to happen for a reason. There is no such thing as a mistake for a Christian. He had figured out that rather than something being wrong, something was right. So he began to look for God's purpose in his hardship rather than waiting for God to fix it. Listen, let this truth fill up your heart and give you some hope this morning. With God, there is no such thing as an accident. No such thing as an accident. No such thing as something he didn't know was going to happen. No such time as where he went to the bathroom and, and like, oh dear, I didn't know that was going to happen. There's no such thing as circumstances that he didn't know about or plan on. Even the painful ones, even the difficult ones, even the suffering ones, God knows about them all and he has a purpose for every single one of them. But what is that purpose? I've told you that God knows what he's doing, even when things seem bleak and, and even if I don't like it, but I haven't said why he's doing it. So why should I trust him when all indicators point to something being wrong? This, this is an extremely important question to ask as a Christian. Because listen, I... I I want to be very clear here that 
Even though God may choose sometimes to fix things here in this life, I want to make sure that we understand that God never promises to make anything turn out right in this life. And I want to make that clear because that's what our culture has gotten wrong about this passage. You see, our culture has taken this passage and twisted it to mean that somehow at some time you can, you can hope that God will make things good for you in this life. But if we're honest with ourselves, that isn't always the case. Sometimes it can be the case for Americans, but it's not the case for people worldwide. Worldwide or even in America, there are diseases that don't get better. There are body parts that don't grow back or gain function. There are relationships that sometimes cannot be fixed. There are real problems, even in America, that don't always go away. So I never want to act like God's truth. It doesn't speak into the real, lasting horror that, that sin in this world is capable of, of inflicting. That is a weak Christianity. So if, if real suffering and pain are possible in this world, and if we're usually not told when or if that suffering will end, and if I say that God has a purpose, then, then there are only two possible answers to the question of what is God's purpose. There's only two possible answers if those things are true. The first possible answer is that our God is a calloused, malicious God who, like a, a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass, loves to watch people suffer. That's one possibility. Or another possibility is that he has a different purpose, a different reason, a lasting purpose. And this morning, I want you to be sure that the Bible says the answer is the latter, not the former. Look at verses 10 through 14, where Jeremiah says that God knows what he's doing because he knows what we need. He says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile." You see, ever since King David died, for, for over 400 years, Israel had basically been running from God as fast as they could. They had sought solace and comfort and blessing from idols and pagan gods. So God knew what they needed most. Look again about halfway through verse 10. God said, I... After those 70 years, I will visit you. And then look in verse 12. He said, you will call and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
And then he said in verse 13, he said, you will seek me with all your heart and you will find me. For a people who had long since abandoned their relationship with their God, do you see what God is saying? He knows this exile is going to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, listen, because this morning God is telling us the same thing he said to Israel almost 2,500 years ago. He's telling us, I know what I'm doing because I know what you need is me. I know what you need is me. He's telling us this morning that he does know the plans that he has for us and, and that those plans are good plans. But he's saying that those plans are good because he will do whatever it takes to drive us toward him. As difficult or painful as it may seem at the time, God knows what he's doing because he is willing to pry our grip off of this world finger by finger if it is necessary until we are clinging to nothing but him alone. And listen, his good plan for you, it might not because, be because you've shown a deficiency in any area. It might, something might not happen to you just because you did something wrong. You may experience some difficulty or some pain or, or some hardship simply because God deemed it was time to press you toward him. Because he loves you too much to let your hope be based on something as trivial as this world. Which means this, brothers and sisters. God is telling us in Jeremiah chapter 29 that there is not a single event in your life, good or bad, that God has not ordained to draw you closer to Him. There is not a single cell of cancer. There is not a single job lost. There is not a single rebellious child. There is not a single difficult spouse. There is not a single moment in your life that God has not planned to draw you closer to him. And listen to me when I say, when God said in Romans chapter 8, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. The only reason that is true for you in this room is because Jesus Christ bought it with his blood. It is not true for anyone else. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, God works everything for their good. Everything. Because of what Jesus Christ did. He means the same thing he's telling the people here in Jeremiah 29 when he says he works everything for their good. That he will even use the consequences of your own sin to draw you closer to him. Your God will walk you into a desert to show you that he will provide for you. Your heavenly father will walk you up to the precipice of nothingness just to show you that he is still there with you. Because listen, here's the glorious truth of what Jeremiah is saying. Even if you are standing with your toes hanging over the edge of oblivion and nothing on this earth, nothing but heartache and suffering and pain, even if you're in front of a firing squad or, or you're in a line at a soup kitchen, if you're looking down the barrel of spending the rest of your life in exile in Babylon, 
when you realize that God is there with you and that he has a purpose to draw you closer to him, you no longer need be frightened by the threats of this world. You realize that not only do you have everything you could ever want or need, but you'll realize that nobody can take it away. Ever. It's not touchable. Take my money from me. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And I've been given the riches of grace through him. Take my job. God has proven he'll provide for me. I'll just spend the spare time you gave me spreading the good news that I'm clinging to at that moment. Sure, my children are rebelling, but I understand that they will not take one single step further away from God than he will allow. Take my country away from me. I'm just a visitor here anyway. My citizenship is in heaven. In fact, let me tell you this. You know why tyrants hate Christians so much? It is not because they're so good at protesting. It is not because they're so good at their keeping their rights and everything. No, it's the exact opposite. It's because those who are in Christ have no problem saying, take my rights away. You think too high of yourself if you think that's going to bother me. Christians, tyrants hate Christians because Christians will look them right back in the eye and say, my father in heaven has taught me that I'm a child of the creator of heaven and earth. Which means that you don't have the ability, much less the permission, to do anything to me that he want, doesn't allow. Send me into exile. Because I know the only thing that awaits me after this life is the eternal presence of my Lord and Savior. And the only thing that's going to happen between now and then is an opportunity for me to display him to others. Everything between now and then is only driving me closer to him, especially the suffering and the heartache and the difficulty. All you can do, world, is push me closer to joining my brother Paul who said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, your God knows what he's doing because he knows what you need is him. And he is willing to do anything to remove the sand, the securities of this world that we have placed under ourselves. Because in our God's eyes, it would be a travesty to let us hold on to that kind of weak, pointless, futile hope. So sometimes he, he removes it by spoonfuls and sometimes he removes it by bucket loads. But one way or another, he's going to keep removing that sand until the only hope we have is that hope that is tempered and tested because it is anchored in nothing else but the rock of Christ. So even when things look bleak, this is why. Even when we don't like what he says, we can believe and trust that God knows what he's doing because we know that he knows that we need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift you have given us in our Savior that just keeps radiating through our lives. It's a gift that we wish we could be taken to heaven right now to 
to understand the, the immensity of it. Again, as our brother Paul said, Father, we, we, we have this desire to be stripped of this flesh so that we could be with you. But we know that, that in your wisdom and in your sovereignty, you have determined us to take more breaths. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would sink this truth deep into our hearts, that you would grow our trust in you and your plan, that we would step outside of ourselves during pain and suffering and see your providence, that we would see your power and your sovereignty and ultimately, Lord, that we would see our Savior standing between you and us, mediating these promises that you have made. So, Father, it is only in his name and his name alone that we are able to, to, to speak this prayer. And so it is in his name we pray. Amen.